You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about the conservation issues surrounding a plant that many of you will probably have heard of in one context or another. I am, of course, talking about peyote. This tiny cactus is native to southern North America and has captured the minds of people throughout history. It's also threatened, both by wanton habitat destruction and ongoing poaching of populations in the wild. This is an issue that's deeply tied to human culture, as you're going to hear. This is probably the most culturally focused podcast I've ever done, but you can't understand the conservation of the species without understanding all of the human culture surrounding it. Joining us to talk about this issue is Keeper Trout. He's an independent scholar and author and a self-proclaimed information junkie. And he's been working with the Cactus Conservation Institute on a long-term survey to understand how continual harvests affect cactus populations in the wild. This is very important work, and it's fascinating to think about all of the complexities that go into conserving a species like this. Fair warning, this is not about the spiritual beliefs or uses of this plant. This is mostly focused on its conservation. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Keeper Trout. I hope you enjoy. All right, Keeper Trout, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, I'm just a researcher and a information junkie. <laughs> just love, love, love learning. I do archiving for the, the Shulgin archives. I'm currently turning uh, Sasha's work into a digital form that's going to be sponsored by Arrowwood, of course. Awesome. And I've been involved with peyote conservation for some time now and uh, been helping with an organization called the Cactus Conservation Institute. And one of the things we've been involved with is a long-term regrowth study. You know, peyote is just a cactus that grows in South Texas and parts of northern Mexico. You know, some people have the mistaken idea that it grows in the desert southwest, but that's based on wrong information. It does not occur naturally anywhere outside of Texas and Mexico. Um, although, you know, you do have people like the Peyote Way Church of God in Arizona that do grow their own peyote. Interesting. And and what brought you to plants out of curiosity? I mean, were you always kind of a plant person? Is it just cacti? I mean, where did this all kind of begin for you? No, I love plants in general, but I've got a special fascination for cactus ever since I was a little kid and was you know, out in the western uh, prairie and was walking through some grassland out in north, far northwestern Nebraska and got this little ball-shaped prickly pear stuck to my ankle. <laughs> when I went and pulled it off, I found it was then stuck to one finger. Oh, no. And I then tried to get it out of my hand, and I found it was stuck to another finger. Then I found it was stuck to two fingers. And for whatever reason, the tenaciousness of that it just really got me fascinated with cactus at a quite early age. 
Right on. That's a, that's a really cool, open-minded way to be, because most people would say, to hell with this, I'm never going back outside again. But again, the tenacity of something that we would otherwise think of just this Cecil non-interacting organism really uh, captured your, your mind. Oh, very much so. I mean, it could have been worse. You know, I watched my sister get thrown from a horse into a prickly pear patch, Ooh. and my parents spent several hours picking the spines out of her. And if that had happened to me, I probably wouldn't have been so fascinated. Yeah, that's a little too much tenacity. Uh, wow, that's that's brutal. So you're the, you came out on the lucky end of things. Uh, definitely. Right on. So, I mean, are you a grower of cacti? Do you just enjoy finding them and and thinking about conservation issues? I mean, what how is how is your love for this group of plants evolved over time? When I was in Texas and when I was still in Oakland, I loved growing cactus. Now I'm in Mendocino County in a redwood forest on a northwest-facing slope. And so my cactus collection has dropped down to, I want to say I've got less than 100 individuals now, just because this is not a place cactus like to grow. You know, whether it's for, you know, the rain we get in the wintertime or our temperatures. You know, we have a very short growing season here. And they're healthy enough, but it's not, if I was in Oakland, I'd be getting, you know, a foot or more of growth per column per year. Here, I'm lucky if I get one or two inches. Wow. Yeah, so that slows you down a little bit. Yeah, and so I've moved more into, you know, growing mushrooms now. You know, I uh, cultivate primarily uh, lion's manes and uh, shiitakes. Ooh, delicious. And so that's sort of my new my newest obsession, even though I still love cactus. Uh, I'm not in an environment, you know, <laughs> for anything but growing fungus. Well, I mean... We all take what life throws at us, and it sounds like you've adapted well to whatever the climate throws at you. So good on you. Yeah, and I still do go back to Texas, you know, every year. We have a long-term study project on uh, regrowth after harvesting of the peyote cactus, where I guess it was 11 years ago is when the study began. I guess 12 years ago is actually when it began. This was our 11th year of returning to the site and actually looking at how well they regrew. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's been very illuminating. It was just, you know, it was surprisingly difficult to get started because, you know, what we wanted to do is to follow behind one of the licensed distributors and tag the plants they'd harvested and see how well they regrew, but we could not find anybody who was interested in letting us do this. Hmm. So we uh, basically worked with uh, an individual who is a member of one of the original peyote people from South Texas. And he harvests on his own, and his cultural practice is much more like the Wixotica in uh, Mexico. You know, the people are most often referred to as uh, the Huicholes. And it's very different than the Native American church's ritual, where they go into a teepee and sit around a uh, fire and uh, sing. Hmm. His people actually go out with a bow and arrow and hunt the peyote like a deer. Oh, wow. You know, and so it's a very it's a very different approach. But this was the traditional approach of the peyote people in Texas. And so it's still, you know, it's still the one he maintains. But he was willing to harvest 50 plants you know, for himself and let us follow behind and put numbered tags in the ground. And then we tagged another 50 plants that were never touched. And we've been going back and just measuring them ever since. 
Wow, what a great study and a really important study at that. And so in thinking about where this all began, I mean, backing up, what got you interested in peyote and why is it important that uh, you're, you're doing this sort of study? Well, many, many years ago, the peyote plant used to be my primary ally. But I guess on about 1991, I was so horrified by the disappearance of the populations in South Texas I promised the plant that I was never going to touch it again and would work for its conservation. So that's what I've been doing ever since then. Wow, that's incredibly noble of you. And it's really important that people have those sorts of realizations, especially if it's something you deeply care about, which obviously you formed a relationship with this plant over the years. And it's and it's changed as you've witnessed what's going on in the environment. So let's think about peyote. I mean, everyone listening will probably have heard it probably much fewer of them will realize it's a cactus and even fewer of them will realize the the plight of this cactus. So let's start at the beginning. What is this as a plant? How does it grow? Where does it grow? What kind of habitats does it like? At least in Texas, it tends to grow primarily in dense thorny brush and very gravelly soil that contains some degree of some type of calcareous material. I mean, that could be limestone, it could be broken bits of coral reef, you know, because Texas used to largely be underwater, and so a lot of the hill country is the remnants of a, uh, a basin surrounded by coral reefs. Hmm. You know, and it doesn't do well if there's not calcium in the soil. So it's a true calciophile. Yeah, in Texas, it basically grows within not too many miles of the border and what's referred to as deep south Texas. You know, basically like Laredo down to about Rio Grande City. And it used to have a little bit broader range, but most of its habitat has been converted into ranch land, pasturage, orchards, or some level of agriculture. And so once the land gets root plowed for removing the brush cover, peyote does not come back. Yeah. And that's, that's been the – a lot of people blame overharvesting as being the problem, and it is a serious issue now. But the reality is the biggest problem is loss of the vast majority of all of peyote's habitat to agriculture or, or some other type of land conversion. You know, if someone's building a shopping mall, that would be just as detrimental as putting in an orchard. Sure. It's just a matter – basically, if a bulldozer scrapes the surface of the land, peyote doesn't tend to come back and – it's the same with root plowing because root plowing basically uses bulldozers to pull this device through the land that cuts the roots below the surface, sometimes as deep as 30 centimeters. Uh, but what happens in the course of this is the, the surface gets sort of churned up and mixed. And what a lot of people don't grasp about arid lands is the surface can be very unfriendly because of the mineral content, especially if it's alkali. And so what happens over long periods of time is when rain falls, it will dissolve the soluble minerals and carry them into the ground. And the depth of maximum penetration, it will basically accumulate them in beds of what's called caliche. And what that means is you have a pH gradient where the surface becomes relatively friendly to life and it becomes more unfriendly the deeper you go. Oh, wow. And so when you run a root plow through that, you churn this back up and make the surface very difficult for plants to reestablish in. And it takes over a long period of time, rainfall will reestablish that gradient 
But again, it's long periods of time because, you know, rain there, they get a lot of rain after hurricanes, but it tends to come through in just parts of the year. And it's very common, you know, everywhere peyote grows for the plants to see between eight months to even a full year of total drought. Wow. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with uh, reestablishment is, you know, it's a pretty harsh environment down there. It's very mild in terms of the winters, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it's rare that they see summers that, you know, don't have many days in excess of 100 degrees, Oof. you know, which is what he loves. It, it loves. it loves heat, and it likes uh, regular drought conditions. You know, it's very much adapted to it. It grows almost at the surface of the ground with most of the plant being a fat underground stem with some root at the base of it. And a lot of people regard that entire thing as a root. But most of it is actually a subterranean stem Oh wow! rather than root tissue. And it's used for uh, food and moisture storage, which is why they can survive prolonged drought conditions. Right. But the assumption then would be that they'd have to be established first. And that's kind of what it sounds like you were spelling out here is not only does all of that soil disturbance change things for long periods of time, we're talking like geologic periods of time, but also... The idea that these plants probably established by the sounds of it during these like small little windows of opportunity. And if you have those conditions where it's unfavorable year after year after year and all of that disturbance on top of it, that's probably a perfect storm for just like you said, not getting any sort of regeneration. Yeah. And it that's what we've noticed is, you know, if you over harvest a field and you leave it alone for long enough, there's going to be a seed reservoir that will eventually bring the population back. But if you change the soil through root plowing, you've undone that capacity. I mean, peyote is actually a really easy plant to grow. Mm. It's super rugged. It could quite readily be reintroduced into the wild. But one problem is if you have harvests occurring more frequently than the plant is permitted to flower and drop seed, you know, you're looking at a sort of a scenario where a person would have to believe in immaculate germination in order for the plant to survive it. And that's just not realistic. Right. And and it's an interesting point to bring up, this tension between what is truly at stake here and, and what is truly to blame. And, and in, I always hear this with, with conservation issues too, and especially in the context of foraging or harvesting, is they say, well, the bigger issue is the habitat destruction, which it is. If you remove 99% of suitable land, that 1% is going to be, you know, it's it's 1% of its former range. But then what you end up seeing with plants like peyote is that 1% then gets, a, you know, repeatedly harvested over and over and over. And I'm sure that there's better ways of doing it and not good ways of doing it. But I would assume that Outside of Native Americans or indigenous tribes, there is probably no legal harvesting of this plant, right? None whatsoever unless uh, there's there's some oddness that happened in Oakland that nobody really knows what it means yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that in the papers where basically the Oakland City Council have, quote, decriminalized, unquote, all entheogenic plants. Now, the problem with this is, and this is, you know, includes peyote. So, you know, on the surface, uh, it looks like peyote has been decriminalized in Oakland. But the question is, what does that mean in reality? You know, because it very clearly uh, is not binding on the police. 
it's not binding on the district attorney's office. And so despite the interesting aspects of this, uh, only time is going to tell what it really means. And so right now in Oakland, it's technically, according to the city council, legal to cultivate peyote. Or at least you won't be arrested for it. Right. But of course, if the police and DA doesn't agree, then it's a moot point. But so we'll, we'll see. Uh, but no, there's it, it's uh, also sort of interesting in that you know the Peyote Way Church of God cultivates their own peyote. It's really unclear though where the dust is settling on all of this. You know they've been operating openly for many years and are being left alone. But they're the only group I know of in the continental U.S. that's currently cultivating. I believe that there's Native American church chapters that are. And as far as I can tell, everybody's trying to be really quiet about it because there's no real legal protection. To cultivate peyote, you have to have a what's called a manufacturer's license to manufacture peyote. And, of course, technology requires seed production to manufacture peyote. You know, we really can't take it beyond that. And, I mean, you could do in vitro tissue culture, but those types of techniques are not accepted by the Native American church. And many, many NAC members reject cultivation altogether as showing a lack of faith in the ability of the peyote to take care of itself. Hmm. So some interesting conceptual collisions that are ongoing. And it's not all of the Native American church, but it's most notably the oldest members and the youngest members are the ones who are open to cultivation. And the rest of the people are very much uh, fundamentalist Christians in their way of analyzing pictures and responding. Right. And that's part of the problem is that, you know, there's this onus on faith where if you think peyote should be cultivated, you'll be accused of having no faith in the peyote, Hmm. which is a rather toxic meme. But, you know, people's religions are people's religions and nobody else can tell another person what's appropriate for them. Right. And so it's just we're we're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out. But as the generations move forward and younger people get older, this is going to resolve itself. I have no doubt about that. You know, but right now the the core of the power structure is very is largely anti-cultivation. And the big problem with cultivation legally is that it requires a DEA permission and a DEA manufacturer's license. And I know one Native American who's been attempting to get such a thing for I believe this is year 13. Wow. And so far, DEA has done the same thing they do with cannabis for medical research is they try to run people in circles for as many years as possible in hopes that they run out of steam. Or in this case, I think they're hoping that he eventually uh, grows too old to do it. Right. But yeah, it's a a fascinating picture because if you can't get one, you're not producing it legally and you can be caused problems. And so... If DEA isn't helpful in terms of issuing the license, people are sort of screwed. Where it gets more complex is all of the peyote regulations in Texas were initially created to be hostile to peyote people and toxic to the larger picture. They have built-in toxic mechanisms designed to eventually kill the peyote trade. In specific, possession of seeds, 
and cultivation is illegal for anyone in Texas, including licensed distributors, including indigenous peyote people. Oh, wow. This is part of the Texas peyote regulations, but it's also in the Texas health code. And so the only real way to overcome this would be for some Native American group to file a lawsuit against the state of Texas, the DPS, and DEA for depriving them of what Congress has given them as a right. And that's not only a hugely expensive endeavor, but in light of this, you know, the Smith decision, making it where state rights can be respected over federal interests, if the people suing lost, they would be required to pick up the legal costs of the people they were suing. And so it's risky and expensive. And the only other option would be to get this Texas state legislature to change the Texas health code. And that's that's probably the simplest and easiest thing. It's just going to take somebody to actually do it. Yeah. But right now, the way it reads, if you're a landowner and you have peyote on your land, it's completely legitimate, legal, and no problem for you as long as it's in the ground untouched. Hmm. You have the right to destroy it for any reason that you want, but you can't transplant it, you can't move it, and you can't grow it. Wow. And you can let anybody on your land harvest it for free or for a fee, but you can't charge them money per plant. You basically charge them like an access fee for a month. And during that month, they have the right to come in and take as much as they possibly can during that time. Wow. And then when they go to sell it, they're forbidden to sell it based on weight. It has to be sold based on piece. So a peyote button the size of a quarter will have the exact same cost as a peyote button four inches in diameter. And these are like in the law in Texas that are governing harvesting and distribution. So the whole picture is set up basically to cause a slow destruction of the peyote trade. Wow. Yeah. And and it sounds like all of these, again, this perfect storm of cultural, political, legal issues, all of this is combining to do great harm to the species in the wild. I mean, I can't help but feel that other than the wanton destruction of its habitat, all of this red tape and bureaucracy and and legal battles are getting in the way of of what's really at stake here is the ongoing persistence of this species ecologically, biologically in the wild. Oh, certainly. And also the people involved are quite often getting shortchanged. You know, the Native American church is quite fettered in many areas, but even worse, all of the indigenous peyote people in Texas, the original peyote people, were largely not federally recognized. And so right now, the way that the peyote laws have been changed is that to have the legal right to use peyote, you have to be a member of a federally recognized tribe. So all of the original peyote people of South Texas, who, you know, their people have been using peyote for many thousands of years, actually don't have the legal right to use harvest or possess peyote. And, you know, there is some concern for many years that restriction of peyote to just Native Americans or using a blood quota of 25% like Texas has was uh, racially discriminatory. And so DEA came up with this idea that if they change it, so it's members of federally recognized tribes, it's no longer discriminatory 
because it discriminates against some Native Americans. And oh. as, as twisted as it sounds, this is the current reality. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's, it's a mess. I believe it's going to resolve itself, but I think it's going to take a while. Yeah. It's not, it's not a simple picture by any means. I mean, and it's not like peyote's extinct. You know, it's a highly pressured plant, but it's not an endangered plant. You know, there's still lots of areas where peyote is thriving and abundant, but it's largely based on those being areas nobody's permitted access to, mm. which isn't exactly a happy balance. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm curious, too. I mean, from the, the population standpoint, it's it's not endangered. It's it's under pressure. Right. And so yeah, threatened the best word. So what does it look like when you see a population growing in an area where no one has access to versus a population where there is some legal access to or a population where there's no legal access, but people are poaching? I mean, is it obvious where people have access to these plants that they're that they're disappearing? I mean, is that why it's threatened? Disappearing or gone. Yeah. You know, you can go to our website, cactusconservation.org, and actually see some images of this very thing. We were fortunate enough to be given access to a piece of land that had never been harvested. And the differences are really quite striking. You know, if you're in an area where it's good soil, good vegetation cover, and a nice population, you can barely take a step without stepping on a peyote whoa i mean it, it, that's how thick it tends to grow and back in the day there was lots of ranchers who would describe walking on their land as being like walking across mattresses weird you know and it's just if it was maintained that's the way it would come back and grow yeah so like i say it grows you know it's one of the easiest cactus there is to grow from seed and it's quite rugged and resilient and so all it needs is a little bit of cover and protection from things like rabbits when it's getting started and it'll do just fine but the problem is you got a lot of people who are relying on small bits of land it's being augmented by large-scale poaching ongoing in mexico that's being smuggled into the U.S., that's causing problems in and of itself. You know, because Mexican peyote people have need for their peyote. It's a problematic picture all the way across the board. Yeah, and, and it's really strange to think, too, that, you know, who is doing this poaching? Obviously, there's this image, right, of people just partying out in the desert. I mean, is that where a lot of this illicit poaching is going or is it just people are pushed into this back corner where they don't have any other options but to get it that way i believe that part of it is people feeling they have no other options okay uh, the problem with this picture is there's not a lot of concern for the health of the local populations because you know say if you were a harvester and you went to a piece of land and you're a poacher you wouldn't have any way of knowing who'd been there before you and when the last visit was mm. and so you might be looking at a plant that looks like it's harvestable but if it's just regrowing after a harvest it sucked all of its food stores out of the subterranean stem that produced it and so if you come back and harvest it again before it's had time to rebuild those food stores you probably killed that plant this time mm. and that's one of the confounding factors but basically there's a lot of misdirected blame you know, drug users tend to get blamed for uh, being the cause of, of uh, poaching and stealing peyote, especially in Mexico. Mm -hmm. The reality is 
Those are the people that have the least freedom of movement, especially invisibly. It's the same in South Texas. The notion that, you know, outside drug users can come into South Texas, figure out where the peyote is on these lands, manage to trespass successfully, and then steal it in large volumes is almost silly. (laughs) There's money involved. That's the thing. I mean, if you're basically harvesting what has to add up in the millions of buttons a year, you're talking about something that is actually substantial income for the people doing it. And this is the one aspect of it people don't like looking at or thinking about. But for example, in South Texas, right now, because of the influx of Native American church due to a couple of property acquisitions, they're getting the blame for uh, increased poaching in South Texas. Hmm. It used to be quote, hippies, unquote, were getting the blame. But if you talk to anybody who actually lives in South Texas, they believe it is and always has been the licensed distributors and their employees who are involved with most of the poaching and trespassing. And that would actually be logical because these are all locals who've grown up there, know the land. They know every piece of parcel that has peyote, whether they're permitted on it or not, they know where the peyote is located, and all they have to do is physically get to it. Right. Whereas, like, say, if somebody was to head down to South Texas, good luck to them on even finding <laughs> a peyote plant. And it's the same with Mexico. There's parts where you can go to and actually just go walk around and find peyote. But as a gringo in Mexico, it's not like you've somehow got free, <laughs> free unfettered run to go yeah. har- harvest scheduled plants. Plus, Mexico has three layers of protection for peyote, not just the drug laws. There, peyote is protected by virtue of the drug laws. It's also protected because of inclusion in the Mexican constitution. And it's also protected as a member of their flora and fauna. And so it's got three separate layers of protection that make it really tricky for people to export peyote out of, te- out of Mexico into Texas. Hmm. And there's been a lot of movement for many years trying to figure out how to do that. But like I said before, uh, it'd be really unfair for the Mexican peyote people if Mexican peyote suddenly started getting ripped out of the desert the same way that it has in South Texas, specifically for consumers in the USA. Yeah. You know, this is, a, this is an area where people really need to take responsibility for their own future. And, you know, pillaging and taking other people's material resources is sort of, you know, the colonial way of being. And it's ironic that that's being utilized right now uh, by some members of the NAC in Mexico. Yeah, that's a mess. And it just, you know, it just reeks of that that capitalistic venture, right? There's the people that are making the most money on it, like you said, are the ones that have the distribution and their employees that are that stand to like you said, if you're selling millions of buttons, geez, that's uh, it's quite the income. Well, it could be the licensed distributors have their hands tied on what they can do and what they can't do and what they can charge. Something a lot of people don't grasp is If you're a Native American church member and you have permission to access a piece of land, you as an individual can go out there and harvest off of that land with landowner permission. And so there's a lot of what might be referred to as rogue peyote harvesters Hmm. who go out 
as individuals and harvest peyote to supply to people. These people leave no record behind. You know, as far as when you look at the peyote harvest numbers, these harvests are not included in those numbers. And so the actual amount of peyote harvested every year is unclear to anybody. That's one of the confounding factors is there's no way to actually know how much peyote is harvested in a year. And for that matter, there's no way to actually know how much peyote is consumed in a year because there's no way to know how many Native American church members there are or how often they meet since there's no consistency between one chapter or another. You know, some chapters might only meet a few times a year. Some chapters might meet over 50 times a year and do. And so there's uh, a lot of unknowns in this. The biggest problem is everybody likes numbers and everybody likes statistics and they don't often question where they're coming from. And if you look at the numbers kicking around, you can find uh, a quarter of a million Native American church members tossed around as if it's some sort of mantra. But you'll find that number appearing unchanged from 1959 through today. Hmm. You can also find the numbers of 400,000 and 700,000 appearing. But like the 250,000 number, it appears somebody at some point just pulled these numbers out of their ass. Because there's no obvious way anybody could actually conduct some sort of census and find out how many people are actually using peyote on any any given week of the year. You know, and so the problem with this is if you have a religion that's reliant on a sacrament, you need to have a supply that's capable of fulfilling your needs. If you don't know how many members you have or how many meetings are occurring or how much peyote is being consumed per meeting, there's no actual way to guarantee your supply or plan for your future. And this is, this is the problem that is existing right now. And a lot of people are concerned, including inside the Native American church. And so there's, there's really encouraging movement ongoing. You know, it used to be that you know, we'd get told things like, thank you, but no thank you, when it came to cultivation. Mm-hmm. Now what we're hearing is, We're not interested in cultivation for ourselves, but we're very interested in cultivation for our grandchildren. And while that might not sound like a total answer, that's huge. Yeah. You know, so the awareness is there and the concern is there. But again, people are locked into belief systems because of faith. And the thing a lot of people don't grasp about the Native American church is due to the peculiarities of the allotments on the reservation system, the vast majority of Native Americans are fundamentalist Christians. They might be Methodist, they might be Baptist, they might be Episcopalians, but they still have exactly the same type of ideology as fundamentalists do, which you know is putting heavy emphasis on faith. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but sometimes, you know, Work is required in addition to having faith. And that's that's the picture here. And I mean, know? just having that understanding in and of itself, you know, you can't deny the cultural aspect of this, whether you're looking at it from a biological or spiritual or whatever perspective you want to take, that culture matters. And understanding what's driving it, like you said, 
uh, you know, the, there's those quirks that you really have to take into consideration when you're trying to think of the big picture thing here, which is, you know, keeping peyote on the landscape. And two things that are really important is having respect for other people's cultures and other people's religion and also having some belief that it's their responsibility mm-hmm. for that very reason. And so it's it's problematic if you if anybody comes along and tries telling somebody else what's appropriate for their religion or what's appropriate for you know how they practice their religion. You know that crosses some very dicey lines. You know and that's one of the things that makes what we're doing with cactus conservation such a tightrope walking act is we try to maintain respectfulness for everybody involved on all sides because the only real solutions are going to have to be the ones that have the respect for everyone who has interests interest. Right. And that's what makes it so complex because it is a schedule one drug right now. There's allowances for the native American church to utilize peyote, but the only protection that they have is for the quote, non drug use of peyote. Unquote. And so the moment that it's recognized by a Native American church member as a drug plant, they no longer have the legal right to use it. Oh boy. And this, this, this is a subtle thing that a lot of people don't really understand. Actually, I've heard a lot of people complain about you know, the sort of hypocrisy of people insisting peyote is not a drug. But the reality is, if that opinion is not rigidly held to, their right to the plant is not guaranteed. Wow. You know, and I think that's something that's really worth understanding because it sounds sort of bogus and bullshit to hear somebody say that, but it's important to understand that no matter what, how they want to define that word drug, they are very much backed into a corner of having to hold on to that opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. It's also, you know, there's a lot of reason for optimism. You know, there's a lot of people who are starting to think and plan and ask questions. You know, there's a piece of property that was purchased down in South Texas called the 605, where Native American church are actually being introduced to the plant as a living plant. Because this is part of the problem historically is most of the peyote using groups didn't actually get introduced to peyote as a plant. It was introduced to them as a, as a trade good that was brought to them usually as dried material. And so if it's very different. You know, if you have something where your medicine comes to you in big sacks of dried material, your relationship to that medicine is automatically different than if you yourself are interacting with that plant as a living thing in the ground. Sure, yeah. And so this is why I'm saying that there's some very positive changes that are ongoing because I believe a lot of the problems are going to solve themselves as people get to be more intimately familiar with the peyote as a plant. Yeah. You know, I think of how much even just outside of this specific example, we don't realize or people don't they take it for granted that this stuff just ends up in the supermarket or in the pharmacy or just, you know, comes to their house not the where did it come from, how did it get there, how does it grow, how often do you need to, 
you know. Exactly. It's just like going into a grocery store and buying a chunk of meat wrapped up in plastic and with a nice little cushion behind it to soak up the blood and keep it contained. You know, you don't have to think that some animal just died for you and had a <laughs> chunk cut out of it that's been served to you in a nice sanitized way. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's one of the problems of, you know, how food distribution occurs is it's real easy for people to get divorced from having, you know, real respect for the fact that our lives are sustained because something else has died. Right. Yeah. That's a tough pill to swallow too, I think. And and that realization has to come through time, but I'm, I'm encouraged that there is these moments, these actions that are connecting people to the fact that peyote is this living cactus that has a habitat, has an ecology to it that won't stay around if things keep going the way they go in a lot of areas. But thankfully, this is an awareness that's really starting to percolate. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of counterbalanced by some toxic ideas. You know, like I was saying before, you know, this faith-based mentality that has trust in the ability of the medicine to take care of itself. And don't get me wrong, I believe the medicine has the ability to take care of itself because I'm here. Other people are here. You know, peyote may not have a voice that can go out and talk to people and it may not have hands and it may not have feet, but it can definitely enlist human beings to do those things on its behalf. And I personally believe that that's why a lot of people are involved with this picture right now is because we've been mobilized, you know, because as humans, we can accomplish things that plants cannot accomplish. And that's a real, that's a simple matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I consider myself an advocate for that plant. And I love that. And that's what's so important for people like yourself to do is, is like you said, I mean, these aren't tax paying members of society plants are plants and they're even harder for people to understand or at least empathize with than animals but without plants there would be none of the rest of this stuff so this is where giving a voice telling the stories sharing information trying to get as much information out there as possible having the conversations like we're having right now to just get people thinking about it and then suddenly it becomes part of that collective consciousness on some level or another well certainly and one thing I'd suggest that's really helpful is it's easy for people to look at what they consider wrong action being taken by other people. Rather than condemning them for that wrong action, it's worth trying to understand what their motivations are, because that's actually where the answers for this can come about, is not trying to create more battle lines between individuals but trying to create a broader framework where more people are working together for shared goals. Yeah. You know, in this case, the shared goal is one of sustained existence of peyote on the planet. And some people who are very conservation-minded see it no farther than that, that this is all about plant conservation. But the reality is the Native American church has the legal right to consume peyote as part of their religious practices. So any attempt at conservation that does not take into account the need to furnish peyote to the Native American church on a scale that fulfills their needs is going to fail as a conservation approach. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's cut and dry. Yeah. Because they actually do, in fact, have the right, the legal right to peyote 
through congressional action. And this is a sort of dicey thing in that the Native American church does not have a constitutional guarantee for peyote. Their access to peyote is not actually based on the First Amendment. It's based on a congressional action in the 1990s. Because the Supreme, the Supreme Court uh, removed the compelling interest test with the Smith case. And that basically lost the Native American church their constitutional right to peyote. Ugh. But at the same time, the congressional action that corrected that, even though it has problems of clipping out a lot of legitimate peyote people, it also is why the Native American church has the legal right to peyote right now. And while that may not be a perfect solution, it at least protected their interests and their ability to continue their religion. Right, which is important. And again, coming back to the cultural significance of this and, and making it so that everyone's at the table for the same cause but recognizes all of the stakes and, and interests involved here. You know, this is why you're doing this study, right? This long-term harvesting study just to even have some semblance of an idea of how these plants respond to all of this. So in thinking exactly. about the practice and what you're finding, I mean, is there a sustainable level of harvesting that can be done with this species? Oh, certainly. But it's going to take conscious harvesting. And by conscious, I mean fully informed situations where if a harvester enters a field to pick peyote, they need to know when the last time somebody was there before them. There also would be, it'd be helpful if there's guidelines about how many plants to take, what size plants to take. You know, if people know what's there and know when it was harvested last and they're giving like eight years or more between harvests, peyote harvesting could in fact be fully sustainable. I mean, the plant grows well enough to enable that. Hmm. Obviously, there has to be land in existence. And this is one of the big, this is, you know, again, the single biggest problem is land conversion and loss of the land as potential harvesting land. You know, the notion is that the parcels that have never been harvested should be opened up for harvesting is a really short-sighted one. You know, better management of the existing and known and accessible peyote fields actually holds the answer. Cultivation would hold the answer, too, but we're a few years off on that one because of, one, entrenched resistance, and two, because of the cost. You know, if this thing in Texas could be addressed, peyote could be grown in Texas in its natural environment. Right now, the way the law reads, you'd have to grow it outside of Texas. And growing it outside of Texas would mean greenhouse production, which adds a substantial chunk of change, not simply for the greenhouse, but for protecting that greenhouse. Because I'm sure, hmm. I'm sure anybody listening to this is aware Peyote is probably the single most commonly stolen plant that there is. You know, maybe cannabis would, there's more cannabis stolen from people. I don't know, but it's really common for peyote plants to be stolen from peyote people. I mean, it's actually rampant. Wow. And, it, and this is one of the problems with cultivation legally is one of the conditions that has to be satisfied with DEA is prevention of diversion. 
And so, you know, like if you have a, a research facility and you're being permitted to maintain some peyote plants simply for study, they have to be behind three layers of locked doors and they have to be inside of a securely locked metal cage. Seriously. Jeez. You know, and it's as a funny aside, I knew a researcher in California who had a Schedule One license and was maintaining a peyote, not many, just, you know, a few peyotes for research and study botanically. He had a formal complaint lodged against him with his superior because she had to water the plants. And in her opinion, the fact that she had to open this cage and water these plants that were so incredibly dangerous, they had to be kept locked in a cage, was endangering her safety. Oh, my gosh. It's a wacky and peculiar picture. Yeah. But, I mean, here we go. I mean, this is, again, comes back to this sort of cultural misinformation thing that you have this sort of mythos that gets built up because, A, so few people interact with anyone from the the peyote people, I'm sure. And and B, you know, just years of what we, you know, like sort of the reefer madness 1950s era perception of what, uh, you know, quote unquote, a drug is. It, it just breeds this almost fear. It's like people see these things and want to run to the hills screaming because they think it's going to attack them. And that is where it comes from is from that same era. You know, there was great difficulty in getting peyote made illegal early on. Matter of fact, there was complete failures at getting it illegal at the federal level. And so what ended up happening is they kept trying to slip it through in like appropriations bills, transportation bills, uh, adding it on as a rider with things forbidding alcohol. All of these kept failing. So what, what ended up happening is in 1929, a clause was when they were creating the federal narcotics farms, you know, at Lexington and Fort Worth. They uh, put a clause in that permitted the admission of peyote addicts for treatment in that facility. Then in, I think it was either 34 or 36, there is a uh, addition made into the labeling laws of the Pure Food and Drug Act that required any sales of peyote to have a prominent label warning about it being a habit-forming drug. And so the first, uh, the first uh, prosecutions of peyote that were occurring all of the way into the 60s were done based on this labeling law for basically distributing peyote without a label warning that it was a habit-forming drug. And these were end runs that were done in the wake of the failure to be able to get actual laws against peyote. Wow. You know, peyote wasn't made illegal until... You know, all hallucinogens were made illegal. I mean, on some state levels it was, but I'm talking about the federal federal action. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, and in thinking about, you know, just misinformation and then scaling up to just the general public's view of, like, plant blindness and, and you know, the thought of people going out that may not be as familiar with what these cactus look like. Like, other species probably get poached thinking that they're peyote, right? There's other cacti that are falling victim to this as well. Star cactus does, the Astrophyta mysterious, mm -hmm. but it's not clear, you know, that all of that is mistaken and some of it's not based on bad information from people thinking that it actually has some sort of activity. Oh, I see. And, 
I mean, you know, if, if you think something has activity, you could probably find it out of it, whether it does or doesn't. Right. But uh, that cactus clearly does not. Hmm. Now, one positive thing about this, and, you know, might be might sound a little cynical or maybe even dark. Star cactus was regarded as being incredibly threatened. And it's actually on the endangered species list. And it was considered to be right on the verge of extinction with only occurring on a few properties. It was the noticing that these cactus were showing up on the drawing racks at the distributors, along with the peyote being misharvested. That's basically what illuminated biologists to the fact that there was populations being collected from that they were completely unaware of. Oh, geez. And so it actually it actually brought a broader awareness of more distribution of this plant uh, than existed before that. So there, <laughs> you know, so, you know, things tend not to always be black and white. Oh yes. You know, there's lots of times that, you know, problematic things can be occurring that actually can have some good outcomes if people are paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's life, right? It's something I've been struggling with in recent years is just, there's, a whole lot of nuance and gray areas to all of this. And it's all a matter of taking advantage of those moments to actually learn something from them. And and like you mentioned, finding that common ground, working together instead of pitting people that should be in the same camp against each other. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the solution to most of the problems of the world, actually, is, you know, trying to get it where people aren't like at loggerheads with each other. Or worse, you know, like a couple of little kids in a fight, each insisting that, you know, they got hit last, so they owe the other one a punch. <laughs> you know, these are, you know, people could get over that and just try to figure out how to work together by respecting each other's differences. You know, this is, this is the core cause of most of the problems we see is people not agreeing with other people. And because of the disagreement, being unable to find any middle ground that they can work from. Yeah, and totally. That's, that's complex. That's just a matter of having more respect for people's different being different. Yeah, totally. And and just trying to find people that are different too. I mean, instead of just going in your comfort zone day in and day out, you know, reach out, go across the aisle. Exactly. And if something's pointed out about you and your belief systems that you find uncomfortable, rather than fighting it, take a look at it. Because there's a lot of illumination that comes about from seeing where we're wrong. You know, we don't actually learn a lot from being right. Yeah. It's, it's figuring out where we're in error about what we believe. That's where most of the really important things in life get learned. Totally. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more on that. So and thinking about, you know, getting people fired up, obviously, listeners will care deeply about this issue. So and thinking about, from your perspective, what people, the average listener can do to give back for peyote or land conservation, or just trying to understand the nuances of the sociopolitical cultural mayhem that's going on surrounding this cactus. I mean, what, what are some ways that people can get involved or at least do something to, to help this fight? Well, that's a that's a tricky one. One thing I would suggest, even though, you know, some people would take issue with me on this. And if you're not a member of, you know, one of the accepted peyote groups, don't harvest peyote in the U.S. or in Mexico. There's actually people that need it and people that use it. And right now there's enough of a problem trying to deal with conservation issues without that. 
you know, the reality is, you know, if a person was looking for that experience, they could grow it themselves. You know, seeds can be found or they could use some other type of cactus. And that's a avenue that the Native American church does not have because that's not their medicine. You know, in Western reductionist terms, we might say, well, both cactus have mescaline. Why can't they be interchanged? But, you know, it's sort of like years ago, I was really curious why the leaves of ayahuasca weren't used instead of the vine, because the leaves are actually more potent in terms of the alkaloid content than the stem bark is. And I actually had a chance to ask two ayahuascaros this over the years, and both of them instantly said the same thing to me, which is because it doesn't taste right. Hmm. And this is a really important thing. You know, the experience isn't simply about pharmacology. You know, if you have a medicine that's not, that doesn't, quote, taste right to you, that's not your medicine, no matter what the compounds in it are. And this is something that as Westerners, you know, we can, we can live with this sort of reductionist mindset, but to apply it to as a requirement for other people to agree with us really strays pretty far from the truth. You know, and if, if some Native American decided they wanted to experience something like uh, San Pedro, that should be their right. But unfortunately, they're sort of backed into a corner on that now. Yeah. But for a Westerner to believe that Native Americans should be switching their sacraments to a completely different plant with, a, frankly, a different alkaloid profile, that's not appropriate. You know, those are things that only individuals can decide for themselves. And so I'd I'd like to think, you know, that I would have such wisdom, but I don't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, show me someone that does and I, uh, I'll doubt that. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing to doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So it it does make a problematic picture though, for the people who are box, who are basically painted into a corner. Yeah. And that's, that's why I suggest that what's really needed most is, tolerance and understanding of people who might seem to be acting in a toxic way you know they need some help guidance and support in a way that works for them you know where they can hear it and come to their own decisions yeah i mean we get so stuck in our brand of messaging that we forget that other people don't subscribe to that brand right <laughs> yeah and- and it might not even be appropriate for them. Yeah. One thing people could do if they really want to get involved is study, <laughs> go to school, go to school, get a degree in botany, get a degree in you know conservation sciences, and get involved in doing research. Right on. Yeah, a lot of people forget that. You know, the field is wide open. A lot of people think, oh, you know, nobody's going to prove me for, you know, studying areas around peyote. And that's just not true. You know, this is an area that desperately needs more researchers doing, you know, high caliber research. And right now we're in an era where permissiveness in these areas of research is opening up. And so definitely if somebody's interested they should believe that there's actually a future for them that they can create. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a great message to hear. And it's, uh, you know, we need more boots on the ground. So in thinking about what people can do to get more information on this, though, or at least learn about, uh, you know, the long term surveys you've been doing or just cactus conservation in general, uh, where do you recommend they go looking for more information? 
Uh, right now, our site, the cactusconservation.org, is uh, probably the best resource that exists. Okay. There's probably something else out there, but it's it's an area where there's not that much modern research ongoing. Yeah. You know, there's some things ongoing with genetics, the largest portion of which is supporting forensics work in other countries. Uh, and that's not really going to give them a lot of answers. Yeah. People like uh, Kevin Feeney and Stacy Schaefer have written things in recent years that are worth looking at. And you can find, uh, you know, like some of Kevin's pieces are posted on the Cactus Conservation website. We have a library page where we add PDF files of interesting papers and recent papers, oh, assuming, assuming we have permission to put them on there. Right. And in some cases, if we don't have permission, we'll uh, put the details on there so people can go find it themselves from the publisher. And so those are sort of the people I can think of right off. Okay. I'm sure there's people I'm missing, and I would imagine there's a fair amount coming out in uh, the Spanish language that I'm missing. Sure. I'm not sure exactly what I could refer you to recently, but I know there's increasing work ongoing with Lofafora in Mexico, one of the problems is it doesn't appear to be getting published. You know, I think, I think you know, it's conservationists who are concerned about possibly outing areas that they know peyote is in and doing well. Uh, I see. You know, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really clear what the motivation is, but, you know, really, if, inf- if research is being done, it should be published. Yeah, I agree. Because there's just not enough of us working in this area right now. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to give us some enlightenment on this issue. It is fascinating to think about. It's a complex issue, and I'm happy there are folks like you and, and all of your colleagues and coworkers and friends that are working on this. It's it's desperately needed. I mean, as you said, it's not something that's happening a lot, and I hope this can kind of set a standard for a lot of other issues that are going to have to be uh, you know dealt with in the coming decades. Yeah, agreed. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, well, again, I appreciate it. If anyone wants to reach out to you or find out more about you, uh, do you have any social media presence or anything like that? I I did have, but you know, Facebook is just evil. Yeah, you know, forgive me for saying that, but I'm easy to get in touch with. Keeper Trout at Gmail. Um, anybody can reach me through that, and I'm always happy to talk to people about these uh, topics. Well, Keeper, thank you so much for taking time to enlighten us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep up the great fight. Well, hey, thanks, Matt. Hope you have a great day. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Take care. Well, as you can hear, that is a complex issue. Obviously, habitat destruction is the number one cause of extinction on this planet. There's no denying that. But if we don't treat what's left with more respect and more dignity, what are we going to have? I thank Keeper for taking time out of his schedule to talk with us, and I've posted links to all of the Cactus Conservation Institute's information on what's going on, at least in South Texas. So, I hope this was enlightening for you. That's it for this episode. I do have a couple of shout-outs today, though. I'd like to give two big shout-outs to our latest producers on the In Defense of Plants podcast. The first goes out to McMansion Hell. Thank you so much. I love the name. Also, Brittany, thank you as well. These two recently went over to patreon.com slash indefensiveplants and became patrons at the producer credit level. 
So their contributions are going a very long way in making this podcast possible. Thank you to you both. And thank you to everyone else who has given at any level. It really makes the difference, and it means so much to me that we can work together on curing plant blindness around the globe. That's it for me for this week, though. Of course, go check out all of our merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants, and know that a portion of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. Keep checking back in. So many great episodes on the horizon, and the best way to stay on top of it all is to hit that subscribe button. But yeah, that's it. Until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.